Welcome to TNS, the new school at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring nature, culture, and consciousness. Join us now for a conversation with Pat McCabe and Susan Balbus, hosted by Lady Bird Morgan, titled Crossing Thresholds, Staying Awake, and Changing Times. Welcome. It's so, it's really wonderful to see all your names come in in this weird way we have of meeting and being in community these days. Um, And it's great to see people from all over the world. It's wonderful. So I'm here today to welcome new school host Lady Bird Morgan with Pat McCabe and Susan Balbus in a women's wisdom circle. So I want to take a few minutes and just say a few words about our brand new host today. Lady Bird is a nurse and a social worker, a healer and an educator. She's the co-founder and the executive, co-executive director, I believe. Is that right? Or are you the executive director? I think you're the I'm just the co-founder. Yeah, I'm a part of Humane Prison Hospice Project. Okay. Of Humane Prison Hospice Project, where they implement end-of-life care in prisons by supporting and training prisoners to be caregivers. She's worked with the Zen Hospice Project, with Hospice by the Bay, and Doctors Without Borders, and in addition to all this, I know Lady Bird, Lady Bird as a ceremonialist. I saw her in action when she hosted a ritual for Commonweal's Turning Toward event last year. And I was just genuinely touched by her open heart and her ability to hold space for our group, even over Zoom. She uses these same skills when she works with families and caregivers, helping them to step across important thresholds in aging, life, and at death. And we are really lucky that she's agreed to host several events for us over the next year. I hope you will join me in giving Lady Bird a warm welcome. We are recording this conversation. You can find our recordings on our website or on SoundCloud, YouTube, Apple Podcasts, and we have a new outlet. You can find us on Spotify now, too. Ken Adams helps us with all of that, and he's behind the scenes as always. Thank you, Ken. And finally, just want to thank you for your donations to the new school. We operate on a really slim budget, and your donations allow us to make these events available to everybody, regardless of their situation. And now we're ready to begin. So, Lady Bird Morgan, Pat McCabe, and Susan Balbus, welcome to the new school at Commonweal. Thank you, Kira. Thank you so much. Um, It's wonderful to be able to step into the shoes of so many who have hosted beautiful conversations at the new school. I am delighted to be here and I have with me today, Pat McCabe and Susan Balbus, who will be introducing themselves. What I really want to do is provide a little bit of a background to how this conversation um, was created and what my intention was in creating something around thresholds and how we're navigating um, thresholds that change. I had the honor of meeting Pat and Susan about a year ago in a circle of women called Women Bridging Worlds that was put together by Nina Simons and Rachel Bagby. And from my perspective, it was a collection of stones um, that were coming together to be gathered to rub against each other and offer support and wisdom and guidance so that when we were put back down on the shore, we could go about the work um, and lives that we were living with a little more courage, a little more um, uh, connectivity to who we were on the planet and in the world. And my experience in the last 
20 or so years has been that things are going faster and faster and faster. And what most communities have had indigenous to this land, indigenous to all lands, were ceremonies and rituals that slowed us down enough to pay attention to when we were crossing thresholds, when change was happening, what was that change? How were we integrating it? And how was it becoming a new part of the stories that we also carried with our ancestral stories? And that doesn't always happen. And what I experience now is that losing those moments of thresholds um, is impacting our ability to actually make sustainable change. At least for me, that's been my perspective. And in this moment in 2021, with so much change happening and so many possibilities, there's this, I can feel this quality of concern I have in my heart around, are we just going to go racing off, trying to change things and not really paying attention to what's happening? Or can we actually slow down in this tide and cultivate what has brought us to the threshold so that the people coming after us, um, beings, all beings coming after us, have some stones to touch into, to rub against. So... I um, welcomed Pat and Susan because I was so taken by who they are in the world, the walks that they've had. I cannot even begin to express all of that they've done. And what's more important to me is who they are showing up today. Um, so I welcome each of you one at a time to bring yourself to the circle, um, to this group. I'm amazed that there are people here from Nairobi and United Kingdom, as well as Oregon and New York. I mean, it's just incredible. Um, so very exciting. Um, and so please introduce yourselves to the circle and what's, what's arising in you today in this moment to be in the circle and we'll move forward into conversation. And Pat, if you want to start. So I'll say, uh, good morning to you. Uh, I'm coming to you from Albuquerque, New Mexico. I'm in my mama's house. She just turned 97 years old. And so we're we're lockdown buddies over here, and um, we're doing pretty good on this morning. Um, and so I come from Diné Nation, so I'll introduce myself that way and say, uh, um, So I'm telling you about my clans. We get our clans from our mothers. They also relate to specific places on the earth. Um, and I was also adopted into the Lakota spiritual way of life. And so I was given the name Wiyakpa Najiwi. And that translates something like in English, um, womaning, standing, shining. <laughs> uh, I used to say woman stand shining, but now I really feel like uh, this, this, this presence that I've been in, been walking the earth as as the female of our kind is a energetic it's a catalyst it's a it's emotion <laughs> and it's emotion <laughs> too so um uh i was given that name uh and uh i tried to live that name to the best of my ability and uh so i how to introduce myself i um feel like right now the the key thing for me is is listening is is doing what I can to listen to the earth do what I can to listen to the larger community um, and I always keep this here 
this, some people might recognize this. Some people call it the medicine wheel, the medicine hoop. And um, so for me, I, I see myself as being one member of this family of life, um, but as a five, as a five fingered one, <clears throat> but there's all these other forms of life, even, even the trees in my mother's yard, <laughs> I'm, I'm tuning into them and listening to them too. And, and this mountain, um, normally I live two and a half hours from here. So I'm getting to know the elders here, the mountains, the, the older trees in, in my mom's neighborhood, um, these giant stones that are at the base of the mountain. And um, so I feel like I'm really listening for guidance and direction and instruction and following it. <laughs> I'm kind of over good ideas and, and brilliant ideas. And I want to be led I want to be invoked into right action for life now. So that's it in a nutshell. Beautiful. Thank you. Susan, welcome. Thank you, Lady Bird. Um, really honored to be here today. Um, thank you, Pat, for being here with us. Um, my name is Susan Balbas. Uh, Balbas comes from my Spanish grandfather. Um, who um, came to this country around the time of the Spanish Civil War. And um, so my father was uh, first born in the United States, first generation in, born in the United States. Um, and his mother, my grandmother Rose, was uh, Yaqui Indian from uh, Northwestern Mexico. And uh, my mother's is uh, Cherokee and mixed European from Oklahoma. They all migrated to the Central Valley of California during the Dust Bowl region or, or uh, Dust Bowl period. And uh, that's where I hail from. And, uh, but I've lived in the Pacific Northwest region almost all my life. So I live here amongst the Coast Salish people and um, so I consider myself um, multi-ethnic, but really um, I think motivated and um, my passion is for justice and motivated by um, just the knowledge from uh, my ancestors and the teachings that came through my grandparents. And um, I... Uh, was a young activist uh, with young children at a, at a young age and um, kind of raised them in the streets, raising hell <laughs> for environmental justice. And then um, was uh, very active in the peace movement and um, Central America justice until the, the women in Nicaragua said, Go home, you guys, you do-gooders. Go home. Your place is a mess. Go clean your house. And um, so we listened, and we did that. And uh, I began to focus more on um, Indigenous rights and justice and um, have worked in coalitions of um, communities of color uh, for a few decades now, worked in philanthropy, which is a trip. <laughs> And um, anyway, that's a little bit of who I am. Um, and I think we'll get more into that as we go. But thank you for having me today. 
Yeah, thank you. It's beautiful. It's wonderful to hear what each of you wants to share in terms of, you know, who you are and what brought you here, because a lot of that's not necessarily in a bio that we have written online. Um, and to complete the circle, I can bring in my ancestry, which is my mother is Irish and German, and my father um, a mix of some things that I don't get to know necessarily about, um, some African, some Eastern European, some Chickasaw, but not in any combination that I'm aware of um, numbers and amounts, so, um, or even stories from that lineage. And what brings me to this day and this work is um, a growing curiosity about how to stay excited about being on the planet um, and what that means to me. And it continues to change um, how what brought me into the work as a social worker and a nurse is completely different than who I feel like I am today. Um, and you both mentioned the word listening and something that has come up for me I would say in the last two years is that I have dedicated my attention to developing a different quality of listening. Um, and if I think about a lot of the voices that I'm hearing right now, uh, crying out about how they have not been heard, that no one is listening. I'm curious what your um, thoughts are on how do you know when you're listening? What does listening feel like to you? Well, I, I, I'll talk a little bit about listening um, because this is something I've pondered over the years as um, I consider myself to be a listener uh, and I, I, I am very, uh, I like to observe people, surroundings, relatives um, and something that's, that seems to be very prevalent in some of the conversations we're in is it becomes really obvious to me that people are not listening. They are so, um, so into their own minds and their egos. And the point that they want to make is that they don't truly listen to what's happening in the room. Um, and that um, they're just waiting for that time to jump in and assert their their point. And um, I think that that carries over into um, as humans, how we interact with each other. And I feel like we're in this time right now where collaboration, true collaboration is so important. Um, but I believe that our system is not set up for that. You know, I listen to the news sometimes, and I listen, uh, I read a lot in the mornings um, about what kind of the narrative is that's happening out there in this crazy time that we're in right now. Um, and what really strikes me is that in this system, it's a winner, winner takes all. And we're not taught that with our in, in our indigenous circles that when you leave somebody behind, it's not a good process. When you have winners and losers, what happens to the person who's not in power in the winner right now? And we are seeing that right now so clearly. And so we see this um, not wanting to listen, to censor people, to drown out their voice as terrible as we might think that voice is, as, as, as hurtful as it is to us, um, 
People want to be heard. And I think if we listen more, we're going to find that place um, where we do value not just the humans, as Pat was talking about, talking to the trees, the relatives. They have much to say. And they're listening to us all the time. So. Pat? Yeah, thank you. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot going on there. Um, so, you know, in ceremony, um, the holy people uh, said to me, you know, you, human human beings, you can have it any way you want it. Do you know that? You can have it any way you want it. And right now you're saying you want it like this. <laughs> you seem a little, a little like perplexed and uh, <laughs> maybe a little disgusted even. And right now you want it like this. <laughs> but remember, you can have it any way you want it. So, you know, when I heard that, I just thought, what? Any way I want it, any way we want it, you know, and um, and so what that began to say to me is that paradigm is a choice. Paradigm is a choice. And so that's what I've been listening for a lot. I, I, I frame it that way. What paradigm am I am I in now? Because as an indigenous person, I'm automatically, I would say, walking in at least two paradigms, like really distinct paradigms. And So for a long time, that created a lot of confusion and angst. But today I'm going to say that's like a massive privilege. (laughs) It's a huge privilege to to really know, like not wonder, not guess, not imagine, but really know in, in an embodied way that human beings occupy this space on earth in radically different ways, in their thinking, in their actions, in their relationships, in their concepts. Um, and so, you know, moving from modern world paradigm into an indigenous paradigm, which was a big part of my journey. And now, um, you know, I'm ever, ever deepening into indigenous paradigm, I guess we'll say. Um, and some people say there's no such thing as pan-indigenous, but there are so many similarities. And in terms of a paradigm that is based on, on earth, and acknowledging the sovereignty of all beings, that's a very distinct way of worldview, right? And modern world paradigm has got this other thing going on. And so, so I'm always listening for, for what paradigm are we speaking from here? And then, um, you know, talking about the power over paradigm, that's what I call modern world paradigm, the power over paradigm in which you have, you, you have to beat out somebody else in order to have what you need. That's the setup. So it is not conducive in any way to collaboration or cooperation. And so if you're not going to collaborate or cooperate, if you're only going to assert ever assert your power, then yeah, your listening skills fade. They fade because the whole idea is to have the best idea, to be first, to beat everybody else out. If you have a good idea, you keep it secret and you patent it until you can you know, spring it on the world and and make money and and assume that place of power, which is uh, pretty pretty difficult. And and in that power over paradigm, it's completely human centric as well. And so, so for me, um, the listening one um, in the power over paradigm, intellect is the dominant 
dominant way of knowing anything. And, and that's been such a joy for me to, as I began to be called back into the paradigm of my bloodlines and my, and such, um, was that intellect kind of got moved to the back and the other modalities that I have as a human being are called to the fore, my heart, my body, my spirit, you know, and my mind. And in the ceremonies, my mind gets shoved all the way to the back of the line. And it's so interesting to notice how different the vista is, how different the view is, how different the world appears when I'm not only looking through the lens of intellect. And so I guess I'm always listening to to others as to whether they are, whether they, how much capacity they have to, to move and operate from, from, uh, from a broad spectrum of ways of knowing or from a very limited spectrum of ways of knowing. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I think every human being has the capacity to have a very broad spectrum of ways of knowing, but do we use it? Yeah. Yeah. That's, I mean, do you feel, Pat, I'll just speak to that last comment. Do you, as you step into this role of listening more and not being on the forefront of ideas and plans and strategies, what do you notice in the communities, in the, in the activist communities, but also just in living communities, do you notice a cultivation of that ability to listen to different capacities or what is your experience with that? Well, first I want to say I talk a lot. <laughs> so let's not kid ourselves here. I talk a lot. I'm, I was just telling you, I'm on, I had like two eight-hour days straight of Zooming, you know, and I had like one day I had like two half-hour breaks in those eight hours. I'm like, man, girl, you are talking up a storm around here. So it's not that I don't, it's not that I'm only listening and I'm not talking. It's that what I'm trying to talk about is is coming from, from the larger community whose voice is not given a place, right? Yeah, the voice of spirit is not, is not recognized and given much of a, it, it, almost no place in modern world paradigm. It's, it's taboo, yeah. right? Um, and then earth, earth voice, um, you know, that voice is not always heard. So, so I want to be clear about that. But, but what am I noticing? You know, I'm, I'm a part of this extraordinary thing right now. Somehow I'm getting called into um, a lot of work around wealth holders and that weird world of philanthropy <laughs> Susan was talking about. But, what's, but what we're trying to do there, well, we're not trying, we're doing it, okay? Um, we've come together to say that, that we want to, or that, well, we, we didn't know. So we were asking, why are we called here? We know that there's something up with money. Money is upstream of so many difficulties. And what we really want to do is protect the sacred, and because, you know, as one of our founders of this uh, group that I'm in says, you know, with all these changes happening so fast, and as you say, not pausing, not recognizing thresholds, and, and therefore we're not recognizing when we're overstepping boundaries of sovereignty, um, sovereignty of the water, it's right just to be. <laughs> like that's now, now we're putting it on the market, right? It's like, wow. So, um, so, so as things are moving so fast, we're looking to um, uh, try to really have an eye out and pause to protect the sacred, protect those whose voices can remind us of the sacred too, to protect um, those sacred relationships between humans and earth and 
Anyway, um, and so so we want to see how we can begin to put resources behind that that impulse. But how to do it? How to do it? We really want to step out of the structures that come out of power over paradigm and see if we can't begin to, even though we're working with money, um, work with it through a different modality. So what I'm noticing in that group is we're listening. First of all, we all created one of these, which is like a little collage and we call it a netter. So this is one that I made. And, um, and so, so it's so interesting to have all of us. I mean, we did it really quick together on a Zoom call. It was like 25 minutes. But now we keep going back to these because these, these are the, what we chose to put on here is speaking from a place of consciousness, we feel like. And so there's voices that come through these. We call them netters, right? So the, so the netter is, is saying things that, that isn't always in conscious thought. So to do this as a group is just extraordinary. So it's like it's it's really is like like a lot of what happens in in our ceremonies. But now we don't have to put our ceremonies in the mix. We can we can use this, and it does it does a similar thing to allow another kind of consciousness to come through, to allow a, a space for other other voices to come through. In this case, Earth. In this case, Cosmos, and, and many other things. So it's just extraordinary to me to work with a group of wealth holders and people who've worked in finance and philanthropy for so long and to, and to just sort of like bust up the, the old ways and, and try to listen for, for what's, for what wants to happen. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, those, that netter that you just showed, that is a, it's a fantastic, um, I'm losing words, but um, representation of what it, what I was actually getting at, like, how are we, when you, the threshold has already been crossed. There has been this transmission of, of old ways and new ways and, and a need to somehow migrate across but carry those pieces with you. And it's not always going to be possible to have a lodge set up or all of the different practices that we carry within ourselves. There is a way to also embody that in new ways and keep the sacredness of it and express it um, and express it quickly. You said 20 minutes. I mean, that's amazing that you guys created that. That's that's an incredible modeling of that. Um, and so that, to me, absolutely indicates a listening on that deeper level of, oh, there's another way that we can we can do this. And it is possible and we can collaborate. Susan, you're nodding your head. I'm curious. Now, what, yeah. Well, I, I this is kind of exciting. I think that um, more and more uh, I, I, I get pulled into these political policy tables and things where you know I listen I'm listening and and um, I'm like okay what is missing here right it's operating from this level of intellect that Pat is talking about and I need to find a way to bring it down and and ground people in what are we fighting for it is protection of the sacred it is it is is speaking for the relatives that can't speak in this system that's has so much um, so much power over you know the way that we do things um, on the land and um, yeah I you know I'm often I, I feel like an outsider and yeah. Um, Pat, maybe I'll talk later, find some ways to bring that in 
bring that perspective into these conversations where, um, you know, I can fill apart and <sighs> bring some of our uh, the wisdoms that we've been taught over the years um, into these conversations, I think, because they're missing something. I believe that's what it is. Yeah. You're listening to a TNS conversation with Pat McCabe, Susan Balbus, and host Lady Bird Morgan. Susan, does it feel possible to do that? Like when you say that, what I'm just curious if you don't mind me asking you a little deeper, like what happens in your body that around like bringing it forward or not bringing it forward? I begin to, um, I begin to drift away and I get distracted and I can't be present in the room. Um, and so um, I've tried things over the years, like uh, the simple things that we do, like checking in when we begin a meeting, right? And really grounding ourselves right there um, and sharing our common humanity around what brings us there, right? Into these spaces. Um, I had a particularly devastating meeting yesterday, so I'd say right now I'm not feeling very strongly about it because uh, because of the um, Biden administration coming in and the new um, sorry that's my puppy my new uh, the possibilities right for environmental work and environmental justice. There's a struggle going on right now between environmental justice activists and the kind of the big greens the big enviros and i've seen some shift there um over the last several years but we need to have some more shifts because um we're getting to that i i feel like we're we're we've kind of regressed a little bit we saw a lot of movement toward um and with a lot of work um a lot of conversations, um, a lot of compromise, a lot of conversation about how we can bridge these divides between uh, the large environmental organizations uh, with a lot of resources and the frontline communities who are being impacted and um, who are slow, slowly gaining a voice um, in these movements and look at it as a movement and mm. people aren't going anywhere. They're here, going to continue to be here and continue to fight. And um, so, you know, I, I'd say we have glimmers of hope and then we get set back a little and um, uh, I'm still hopeful. Um, still hopeful. We'll remain hopeful, but sometimes it gets uh, very difficult. Yeah, you know, thank you for sharing that. It's it's real. I mean, that's just it. This isn't a, you know, a Disney movie or some kind of planned thing where we know the ending. We don't know the outcome or what's going to happen necessarily. We have an intentionality and we're moving towards something and some people are moving in the opposite direction. And that's the direction that they're going and and what are the ways as as the world gets so connected? You know, I mean, it, it's just it, the reality of that we live in now is so different from 100 years ago, from even like 30 years ago. But even just realizing how how much access we have to information and people and ways of being and that um, it's overwhelming at times. And, mm -hmm. and to your point, Susan, like that when you there's this 
sort of this um, evolutionary wave that happens, you know, like the embryo being formed when you're like curling in and then you come back out and you curl in and you grow a little bit more and then you come back out reshaped. And I feel like that happens in the evolution of political and social change as well. There's a, there's a curling in where you have to sort of tend to things a little closer to the nest and be a little more protected and safer and maybe not go blasting out with something and that when you do go blasting out that you've actually gone in there first and you're not just out with like one, you know, two fingers on your hand instead of five. Um, that, that process of evolving, allowing it to happen. And I, I, I always just come back to imagining, and that's where I'm curious about your feedback about the slowing down. For me, what happens is I, if I can slow it down enough for things to spread out a little bit more and like you're, saying, Pat, like, bring in all of what I'm listening to, then something else can happen that maybe has nothing to do with me or what I thought should happen or was going to happen. But when that pace keeps going and going, and then I just retract and retract, and then nothing comes out anymore, and it's just this movement. Um, so, yeah, I, I'm just... I'm hopeful as well at times, and sometimes I'm completely not hopeful. <laughs> but I, I feel like no matter what, something is happening. And I, I kind of come in and out of this process of realizing I can either be engaged or not. But something is happening, whether I'm aware of my engagement. And you two have walked such strong paths of constant engagement, whether you have always been happy with it or knew what you were doing. That's another story but there's been a consistency to that and that's a remarkable path to be on. And um, could you speak a little bit more to what that feels like to embody that, to be carrying, having been a path builder, a bridge offerer, um, a hope holder. <laughs> um, that's a lot of work. So my part of my family history is that my grandparents were taken to Dutch Christian uh, formed missionary boarding schools, residential boarding schools. That's where they met. And then um, and then they sent their children there. And so that's where my parents met. And then I wasn't sent there, but I grew up in that, um, in the effects of that, I guess we'll say. And so, um, so it's been a process for me to, to understand that I had some other things that a lot of American girls don't have, <laughs> culturally speaking. Um, but that took that was a long process, actually, to recognize. Wait a second. Um, I'm I'm an I mean I really would look in the mirror and and not see an indigenous person. I didn't I didn't I didn't have any way of identifying that because of you know, in my family, we weren't, I mean, we, we spoke of being native, but, but the actual substance of it wasn't being enacted, the language, the ceremonies, the culture. Um, and so it was, you know, it was kind of confusing to just have this sort of surface image of myself that way. And so it's been a process of, of coming into the, to the realization, you know, and, and that began to happen in my early twenties. Um, and I felt very, you know, one one way to access that was to go into some very fierce militant activism circles. Um, and I spent some time there. But as I began to actually enter into the ceremonial life, 
um, I got called in a different direction. I don't in any way um, say that I don't appreciate or feel the deep necessity for the really militant, <laughs> hardcore mm. activists. I think the spectrum, the whole spectrum is needed right now. But for whatever reason, I'm getting called to a different seat. Um, and my seat is, is, a, is a lot more, I think, I don't know if I'll call it diplomacy, but it has an accommodation that not every, every seat in that spectrum has let's just say. And so I feel, um, you know, as I got called into understanding that my, that my gender, so my gender in American paradigm is one thing. My gender in Diné and Lakota paradigm is another thing. And so being called into uh, seeing myself in a different way and the way the spirits uh, talked to me about it was they said, so you think you know what feminine is, but you don't. And you think you know what masculine is, but you don't. All you know is how those two energies behave when you plug them into a power over paradigm. But if you were to plug those energies into a different paradigm, they behave in a completely different way. So, so that, was, that was such a startling uh, piece of information for me. And so, um, so I began to explore, well, what, is it, what does it mean to be the female of our kind? You know, if, if every member of, the, of life that sits on that sacred hoop of life has a perfect design for thriving life, I'm going to say, because if I look out, everything, you know, author Barry Lopez talked about the impeccable way in which, in mm -hmm. which the animals live their life, right? So I say they are living their life in such a way that they cause all other life to thrive. There's nothing about what they're doing that prevents any other form of life from thriving. What do, I mean, that's stupendous, right? So I have to believe for myself that I also have that thriving life design. And so since that realization has come and since I began to consider, and specifically, what does that mean to, to, to hold that place as the female of our kind, um, I feel like I have this engine burning. I have this fire burning to just keep un unfurling discovery upon discovery about what my capacity can be that way. And, and I can go in any direction because, because modern world paradigm is not founded on the principle that life has to be placed at the center. Mm -hmm. So now I'm remembering myself as human being whose activities are placing life at the center. And I can do that in health. I can do that in education. I can do that in economics. I can, I mean, you go any direction, plenty of work, plenty of discoveries to have. So I think that's sort of what's driving me right now is just an excitement mm -hmm. about about this comparing, contrasting, and reimagining, and being a part of co-creating something new. Mm. That's really exciting, Pat. Really exciting. Um, I, I feel like we're really in that place right now, co-creating something new, right? That I, 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 I get the sense of possibility right now. You know, people talk about like the racial reckoning in the United States. And globally, I think somewhat, um, and I think it's opened up some hearts. It's 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 put in, it's made an opening there for possibility of listening and seeing something new and co-creating something different. Um, and yeah, there's challenges with that. And I sometimes I feel like one step forward, two step back. But you know, we're moving forward. We are moving forward, and. Um, I think we're dealing with some fear 
right? Of folks, some fear uh, of the unknown, creating something different that they're not um, familiar with. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think we have to come back to our values, right? Of respect and love for all. And um, honoring uh, what connects us, right? Honoring what connects us. And um, yeah, I, I'm, I, I really want to be in that co-creative space with you, Pat. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> you're there. You are. Yeah. You are. We're here in the space. You right. did it. <laughs> right. Right. Imagine that. It doesn't always feel the way we think, though. I'm just. It's. It's. Uh, there's a relief I feel when I hear that kind of reminder, of like, oh yeah, living to live, living to allow life, um, not a domination, or um, just you're just living and you're experiencing and your intention is around that happening around you um and it's it's i guess in some ways to me it doesn't feel new it's like a reminder like oh yeah that's life it's not so much that we're getting back we're we're creating something new we're we're allowing what's possible um, to be and so i think in some ways that is the 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 uncomfortable edge because it's not so foreign as we want it to be and mm-hmm. i think it, it's easier to not get there if we throw it out there as this really f- distant thing that has never been experienced by anyone and mm-hmm. compassion is just so foreign and you have to do all the studying in order to get there and and the reality is our actual cells do know how to live without those stories they actually know and we can listen to them looking down <laughs> My, my thigh is telling me, um, but we can listen and, um, and it's an embodied listen. So I'm thinking, Susan, like you said, um, oh, I wish I could, the words, but about um, remembering our shared um, ideals and our shared desires for compassion, but actually feeling them. And I think that maybe is sometimes where we lose the connection, the grounding is we're, we're remembering and we're thinking about things Mm-hmm. but we're not feeling it in our bodies and that disconnection of them. Like, I don't know how to connect to that ideal. That ideal is just an ideal. It's not a, a lived experience. Mm-hmm. Well, well, yeah. And, and it's, and it's not just because it's nice. I mean, it is nice, but that in, in the, in the, in the ferocious hunger of this power over paradigm, just because it's nice we keep seeing it over and over again. That's not enough inspiration to change course because it would be nice because it's a nice thing to do. But now we're being pressed with um, uh, an existential crisis. And, and so to me, this is where it gets very interesting because now it's not only because it's a nice idea, but it's because it's actually collaboration and cooperation not survival of the fittest, but the most collaborative and cooperative is what actually survives and is able to thrive. And so if we are, as Thich Nhat Hanh says, interbeing, then our relationships are actually completely paramount and tied to our ability to thrive or to have sustainability or to survive, if you will. So, so this is 
sort of the part I'm waiting for <laughs> is, is when this connection, and it is being made, it's being made in different places. You know, that's why these new alliances are forming, um, which is exciting too. Um, but, but I think more and more that connection is going to be made that, look, this isn't just about being nice. This is actually what makes up the fabric of, of life mm-hmm. is right relations. And as for it being, you know, a new or ancient thing, you know, my, my new thing is really thinking about this whole continent, you know, in my history books, it was presented as though when those ships arrived, whether they arrived on the East Coast or down in on the coastlines in, in South America, um, you know, they always describe this land as though it were an Eden, like they can't believe their eyes, right? They're like, oh my gosh. And they, but the way it's described as though it were undespoiled and untouched by human hands. And I'm like, well, no, actually, the thing is, there were millions of people living here. There were civilizations that had risen and fallen over a long period of time. And so there were, um, there were land, land management technologies that science is only beginning to catch up with because we didn't leave evidence. We weren't there to make a mark. The goal was to harmonize. And so it wasn't readily noticeable to the, to the ologists, you know, as they're, as they're looking mm-hmm. at it. But then I also think about, think of all the social technologies that were going on here. We had thousands of cultures with mutually unintelligible languages, um, radically different cosmologies. I mean, even in, in, in my own territory, Diné, Dineta, Diné Nation, we have the Hopi sitting as this island right in the middle of us, right? Thousands of years this has been going on. They've never become Diné and we've never become Hopi. That's a social technology that modern world simply does not know. So we don't have to imagine. Like this, we, we, have, we, have, we have experienced this. And this whole continent was a single thriving entity. I mean, I just, I love that picture and imagining that. Not just for me as an indigenous person, but for us collectively as human beings. Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah, I think that's a that's a concept that yeah, Pat is just now uh, being recognized, beginning to be recognized. Um, is that um, as caretakers and stewards of the land, right? Indigenous people for thousands and thousands of years cared for this land, and that is why when those ships landed, they saw what they saw, right? They were touched by many, many, many human hands. Um, and um, as a student of history, I used to geek out in the library reading these journals of trappers and, you know, these early uh, Europeans because they wrote things down. And then later you could come and read them. But the horrible part was you had to read it through their, you know, 16th and 17th, 18th century, you know, understandings so you had to kind of weed through that to get to um some documentation right written documentation which is what is valuable to the society but i found that really interesting and then throughout my life i've experienced that you know harvesting tule on the sacramento river and Mm -hmm. seeing the places where it's been harvested and where it hasn't been harvested you know here in the northwest um you know, harvesting camas, our beautiful camas, the prairies that have not been um, 
have not been harvested and the ones that have are very, very different. So you can see those, right? You can see the evidence of that um, when you engage with the land at those levels, those very beautiful um, personal level, right? Yeah. But I actually want to ask you both um, just another question around this. And I mean, I guess this topic of thresholds and where you're stepping across into and the places of listening and hope and imagining and waiting to see what's evolving. But Susan, with particularly to you because of the work you've done around sustainable communities and, um, you know, I, I could just, I have this image of you with just like pickaxes and, you know, you're just like working. You have just worked. I mean, you both have worked. I'm not saying Pat that you have it, I'm, but I'm, what I'm feeling in my body is also just like this kind of like this pre- preparation of getting ready to hand over to the next generation. And yet, are they ready? What am I handing over? Is it going to go, if you could forget about what's not happening or what they're not getting, but if you could envision, oh, this is how, this is what would feel really safe for me to hand over to. What would that, what would that look like or feel like? Well, um, we work a lot with um, urban indigenous people and um, so helping provide space, safe space for them to uh, reconnect and connect with um, communities of color in the area where there's much in common. And then working in coalition with uh, community leaders and, and folks around not moving past that land acknowledgement of what ancestral lands that you live on, but how to really shift what you're doing. Um, I know I don't have a lot of time, but I just want to share a story. You have time. I do. I want to share this story really quickly because it's, I think it really exemplifies what what we're trying to do. And so uh, one of our staff at Na'ilahi Fund, um, entered into a community dialogue around building intergenerational wealth for uh, communities of color and using land to do that. And so as indigenous people, we're like, okay, that sounds a little problematic, but (laughs) right. And so really working in this really beautiful group of folks, um, to um, we brought in the uh, Segorite uh, Land Conservancy, Indigenous Ohlone Land Conservancy from California and talked to them. There was not a dry eye. It deepened their understanding about what it means to protect the sacred. Mm -hmm. And how can we do both? How can this not be an either or? Or then are we supposed to just leave the land to the dominators? who came in and took it and are extracting? No, how do we shift that paradigm? How do we shift that? And how do we promote uh, land stewardship under the guise of ownership in this society? And how do we shift that and do it in a way that's honoring of the first peoples here the people who were, have been here for thousands and thousands of years and who are responsible, right, for this beautiful bounty, right, that is 
and and the relatives that are here and that are still healthy. Um, how do you shift that? How do you deepen that? And we have begun to see that shift. And these kinds of changes take time, mm -hmm. but um, getting more young people there and bringing in their new perspectives, right, into how we do this. So it's a both and, it's not an either or, but how we kind of like integrate our indigenous teachings and values into these groups who are walking into this, walking into this work of stewarding land yeah. in right relationship. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, that seems, yeah, go ahead, Pat, what were you about to say? Um, so much there. Uh, so I think you were sort of leading into a question about youth, but I'm gonna I'm gonna hop in the mix here a little bit around uh, land back. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. So so that creating wealth mm -hmm. through land ownership for indigenous people. What a yeah. what a can of worms, right? Um, on this, you know, because it, it well, so. So I think it begs the question, what is wealth, right? And, and that's what I think would be exciting to me about that prospect is really really get to getting to the bottom of what do we really see as wealth and, um, and what is sustainable wealth? And, um, and so that's coming up a lot in, in the wealth groups that, that I'm a part of right now. And so, you know, I, I really think it's, it's helpful to understand what is significant about, about returning land back to um, the, the original indigenous peoples that it was taken from. Um, and so, yes, it's a form of justice. It's, it can be a form of, of some kind of a justice, an, an acknowledgement of what, what, how this nation was formed, the violence that occurred there, the um, injustice of, of what happened there, um, and so I, I, I get that. But to me, there's, there's some deeper levels. There's much deeper levels to it as well. I don't know. Rachel, my, our sister, our common sister, Rachel Bagby, sort of gave me a little nudge on this. So I'm trying to be careful of my language here because I think she's right. Because I was really having this hierarchy around which, which, what, what part of it was the more noble aspect. But maybe they're all equally valid. You're listening to a TNS Conversation with Pat McCabe, Susan Balbus, and host Lady Bird Morgan. But I want to bring forth the aspect of, you know, so what I say, what I have, I don't know if this is a combination of what Spirit said and what I've come to, but <laughs> I've been saying, you know, um, culture isn't a human construct. Culture is the Mother Earth expressing herself as human being in any given place. Mm -hmm. So culture is not a human construct. Culture is the mother earth expressing herself as human being in any given place. Because everything about our culture comes from our surroundings and our, the relatives that live in that climate and that, you know, those temperate zones and et cetera. So, so th those are our teachers and those are, those are different, you know, here in the Southwest and up in the, in the Northwest and, and et cetera. So our, our cultures emerge, uh, you know, 
as different from each other um, because of the way the earth is. So when a human being is able to be able to listen with this broad spectrum of ways of knowing, full, full satellite dish open of body, mind, heart, and spirit, and also through the ceremonies coming into ways of knowing and, and having ability to really access, uh, I guess we could say a dialogue with that larger community, then that's how that sustainability occurs. Um, you know, because I say if sustainability is the highest and most sought after technology on the planet, who should we be talking to? We, be, we should be talking to those peoples who've known how to live in one place over a thousand years, 5,000 years, 10,000 years, 20,000 years in relative health, harmony, and happiness. So how did they come to have such a relationship? Um, it, it, it's through, like I said, all these ways of knowing and the ceremonies and the songs. So it's been this deep um, back and forth. I mean, I don't know if we can even call it back and forth. It's, you know, in that sense, we are flora and fauna <laughs> yeah. in the place. And so, so, from, so from that place, you know, those peoples who've had that kind of relationship they are there. There's no other way for it to go, but for them to cause that life to thrive there, that understanding, or at least they're not going to impede it. Mm -hmm. So when we return land to those peoples who have that lineage, who even if some of the pieces are gone, um, there's a way that that land recognizes them such that they're going to be able to bring that part, not only that part of their land back to thriving, but actually most of these peoples are also working between the earth and cosmos. And so ultimately we're, we're aligning the, the destiny of earth with cosmos in those places as well. So, so when we are able to enact what we are, that relationship with our places on the earth, then the whole earth rebalances and comes back into harmony. So this is a radical act of global sustainability to be returning lands to indigenous peoples. So I just really, um, this is sort of just arriving for me, but I'm really feeling that and really hoping that we can not only approach it as reconciliation and restitution and all those R words, but but to also recognize that this is this is a, a collective act towards restoration of humanity's right relationship with earth. Yeah. And I just want to add two more R words is rights and responsibilities, right? Mm -hmm. Under the guise of rights in the, in these societies, right. But also bringing the space where we can honor our responsibilities as indigenous people, right. Through, through uh, what some of us have called covenant with creator to care for this place. Right, that it is a deeply held responsibility, and really um, bringing back in the abilities to do that is is for me key to the land back movement too. Yeah, yeah. honoring responsibilities. Yeah, and will that be a shared a shared vision um, by the many? For everyone listening, um, I we would love to have a question or a comment to either an individual or to just the group. Okay. It's this is from Omar yes. uh, Brownson, and he he I think says, What's the shift from power over paradigm to what blank paradigm? Love under, <laughs> love with. 
Um, so for me, the shift from power over paradigm is a thriving life paradigm. Power over paradigm is not leading us to thriving life. Power over paradigm is a death way, and it's leading us ultimately to the to death. Mm. So, um, and so when I think about it in those terms, I think. Yeah. So, so what I want to know is who is the human being when you plug them into a thriving life paradigm? Mm -hmm. And I do feel that indigenous cultures have a few things to say about this, but I also want to say that I think um, indigenous cultures are also in for their own leap, their own leap um, mm -hmm. from, from, from where we are. So it's not only about going back to what was, which I'm not, I'm not sure that that's possible. Right. Um, and so that means we're also on a journey to travel to a something. Um, and, and, and again, if we are interbeing, then maybe it's not only our journey. Maybe this is more of a collaboration journey for all of those who are interested in, in, in life continuing, but also in this, in a sense of, you know, so many people I talk to in the environmental sector just have such a mourning for, you know, what we have done to yeah. earth, right? Mm -hmm. And so I really feel like it's about, um, so I say, you know, one of the things that keeps me rolling is whether we're going to fall off that cliff <laughs> or whether we're going to stop just in time or whatever that is, you know, from indigenous perspective, our understanding of our presence here is much, much longer than Western science, much, much longer. And so we talk about, you know, maybe you've heard people talk about fourth world or fifth world or sixth world, right? So that implies something. We've been through some worlds. Mm -hmm. um, and so, so this is a very long journey. And so, um, you know, when I think about uh, um, what paradigm I'm thinking uh I want to be a part of upholding the honor of being human being. Like that's been the continuum through these worlds that has allowed us to keep emerging. <laughs> we emerge from a world, we emerged from a world that was destroyed by flood. And, and, and the way our stories talk about that, there's many different stories about that, but from different cultures, but, but, but one of the things is to come back, as you said, Susan, to principles to come back to what is the honor of, of being human here. So mm -hmm. no matter what's going to happen, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to try to uphold the honor of being human being come what may. Um, and, and as, as it turns out by part of that is by my participation in understanding how I as human being can be a part of causing life to thrive here. I love that. Yeah, that's really beautiful. Yeah, that's gorgeous. I kind of want to sit with it for a minute, but I see it. I'm just sort of floating off into like, oh, thriving life. Um, but there's a question about philanthropy. Um, maybe, Susan, you want to tackle that if you yeah, want to speak I'll, more about I'll, that relationship. I'll talk a little bit about philanthropy because I kind of cut my teeth on what we called community-based philanthropy at the time. Um, which is social justice philanthropy, which is, uh, you know, called many things, but um, I'm seeing this 
uh, trends now in philanthropy, which are very positive. And I think that COVID has a lot to do with that, right? Because people say uh, COVID's really shined the light on uh, disparities that have been going on, inequities that have been going on for so long that are kind of built into the system. And the way that philanthropy has held that in place is to operate under the kind of uh, the way philanthropy that was set up so that uh, to hold power in place, right? That the experts know what communities need to thrive, right? To uh, alleviate poverty and issues that happen in community, right? So the shift is that is holding respect for people that live in those communities. We call them frontline communities who, you know, low income communities of color, all, all sorts of mostly communities of color. Um, but that to really accept that people are brilliant. People listen they live in the communities and see and dream and know what the solutions are to honor and respect their vision of uh, people that live and are connected into these communities all of their lives. And so I see that shift. Um, and what we've seen with COVID this past year is the movement away from all of these uh, kind of rigid expectations mm. and mandates about what people have to do for that money, right? For those philanthropic investments. And so we've seen a shift in that and the uh, more flexibility around it. And um, I'm gonna fight like heck to keep those, um, that flexibility in place and not go back if and when we move through this <laughs> pandemic and this crisis situation that we're in, I don't know, um, to not go back to that because it it, it's just such a struggle for many of uh, the groups that we fiscally sponsor and work with on the ground. You know, um, that's why they haven't engaged with, with philanthropy because it's just too much. It's too much, it's cumbersome, these processes. And so we're really hoping to um, build relationships, be those bridge builders, right? To really build relationship and put us in right relationship. And so to deepen understanding and the connections um, within philanthropy, I think is vital. Yeah, Susan, I'm so glad that you brought that up because, you know, with the Humane Prison Hospice Project for the first three, four years, we didn't have any money or funding at all. And then it wasn't until coronavirus happened that we received a grant at, with no strings attached, which is quite remarkable when that happens. Like, we trust you. We see you're doing this work. Go and keep doing it. And it was tremendous. And the gratitude is tremendous. And... <laughs> There's this, there's this edge around it where I remember with Doctors Without Borders where we would you know, be in these places where they had human resource to do everything they needed to do. It was just the allocation of, of wealth and how that worked and this Robin Hood 
version that we have now where we just make a bunch of money and then become a philanthropist and then hand it over to the other side, that actually doesn't change anything. It doesn't change anything. And from a receiver end of it, there's this mixed bag of needing it to get the work done. And so you're so grateful, but also realizing like, oh, there's something that feels so inherently not right about it. I don't want to get approval or ask for money to do the thing that I'm already doing. It's it's a very strange mix. And it's really hard to even articulate that in a gratitude way when the, the framework is, oh, I, there's something for you to be grateful for. And so what do you need to do to receive that in order to do your good work? It's a very strange um, way that all of these nonprofits are operating out of philanthropy. And I had a talk with a friend of mine who is a philanthropist. And in her mind, she was really wanting to cultivate more money so she could give more money away. And I thought, I don't want to keep receiving money. I actually want this to work in a way where that's not the thing that's holding anything back, that people are able to do the work that they can do in the world without needing to have that same conversation. And how that shifts, I don't know. I think, it's, like you said, it's a connectivity thing. It's it's understanding how people are living or not living and taking that that part of the story that don't power over mm-hmm. that part has to go otherwise there's always power over oh we're able to do this because of these things these people this whatever and you know that's the story that we've been living with and it's a big one to lose because there's a lot of um, self-identity in that it's no longer about the work it's about um, the beings who provided the ability to do the work Mm-hmm. another complication to the story so it gets it's a very convoluted I don't necessarily want to go down the path of how messy philanthropy can be because it keeps us alive and right now it's the story that we're in and so to somehow create something new without destroying it take the the gratitude and the generosity and the possibility from it and reshape something that um, is sustainable in a thriving path to your point exactly that it's actually just about thriving, not about just moving wealth around. Um, what is true wealth? Sorry, I'm going, <laughs> I'm looking at the questions. Um, going back to listening, what do you hear when you listen to people saying racist or what we might consider to be dangerous untruths? It's a big question. What do you hear? Um, you know, I I remember uh, I was writing around uh, with my cousin who was about 10 years older than me. And I think I was about 17 or so. And um, I forget. he Anyway, something happened and he started going off about what a racist such and such this person was that we had just, I can't remember if it was driving or in a store or something. And I said to him, I don't think I've ever experienced racism. <laughs> Oh my gosh, like the steam was coming out of his ears. He was just like, you know. So I don't know, I don't know what happened to me. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I feel like uh, I'm like, where am I? What happened? You know, so I I came in here in some kind of strange way. (laughs) And I and I still have some of that. I mean, it's not that I don't think there is there are people who behave in certain ways in response to somebody who looks a certain way. Um, I definitely know that goes on. I'm also 
investigating a lot deeper, you know, systemic racism and, you know, as this, as this whole conversation around white privilege and white fragility and what is the, what are the deeper structural things that are going on there? Um, the foundation of this nation um, really being, really being based in, in much of, much of that um, understanding of, of, of the nat- the natural order of things, which were based on, Race. I remember being down in Mexico City and um, went to this museum and there was a poster on the wall that showed that was all these lines of people. And at first I couldn't figure out what it was about. And then I realized they were going from light skin to darker and and darker and darker and darker until the very last one was the darkest skinned person. Mm -hmm. And, And it was like a it was like, I don't know, it was from like the 1700s or something. And it was really delineating what this range of skin color could do and be. And then the next one and then the next one, I mean, it was just like, wow. Right. So, um, but I think right now I, part of what keeps me um, buoyant in such a situation is again, thinking about this power over paradigm piece, because In that place, you're always looking for the edge. And that's why it's hard. So I often work around sacred masculine and sacred feminine, but we could also put in races too. So it's an interesting phenomenon. As soon as we pull out one one group to talk about, everybody else is like, I mean, we saw it with Black Lives Matter, and then immediately comes back, all lives matter, right? So because what happens is anytime we go to so, or, and it happens when we talk about women too, and we say the feminine is rising, the women are going to lead now. That's the word on the street from a lot of different directions, uh, from indigenous uh, community cultures and such. And uh, and immediately, you know, it's like, well, wait a minute, what about, <laughs> what about, you know? So you want, you know, so now you're going to boss us around, and you know, so it's just a, it's a really, I think it's a phenomenon that we have to look at in order to begin to dissect this, because because as soon as you pull out point to one group, everybody else asks in that paradigm, is this giving me more power or is this taking power from me? And so we we kind of um, denigrate, you know, a lust for power. But the truth is power is no joke in that paradigm. That's food, clothing, and shelter. That's future of your child. That's that's care for your elder. So it, it really is no joke. So so we can't we can't you know dismiss it as long as we're staying there. It's real. And so, um, so I always have to preface every conversation. And when I'm going to begin to talk, pull out any group or pull out women or you know, the feminine or something, you know, as I have to say, let's notice this, let's notice where we are. And if we're in this part, if we're operating out of this paradigm, it's going to feel a little uncomfortable. But if we move over to thriving life paradigm, then maybe we can begin to see um, ourselves and our dynamics in our differences in a completely different way. So I find it really helpful that, that those paradigm structures that way in those kind of conversations. It's great. Yeah. I'm voting for a thriving life. I kind of don't even want to talk about <laughs> anything else now for the rest of like the next 20 years. <laughs> Susan, were um, you reading something? I see you. Yeah. So I was reading, it looks like Shantae. Um, how do you encourage people and communities to thrive without depending on handouts from the wealthy. Um, in indigenous communities, so so um, 
Na'a Ilahi Fund is what is emerging as Indigenous-led philanthropy, which is a, a, a concept where because we are community and we are embedded in community, we have relationship in community, um, we have a different way of practicing philanthropy. And some of the ways that we do it is we don't have all those strings attached and we honor and respect people for the work that they have done. We play that bridge builder between the wealth and bring that financial resource in um, so that energy doesn't have to be expended to do that and jumping through all those hoops and things that, that you know, requirements to get that funding. Um, but one of the things we like to do is um, cohorts where people come in and kind of um, represent their community and uh, they do skill sharing, um, talk about, um, engage their community in what kind of solutions and projects they want to do. So what we focus on is returns to regenerative economies. And what does that look like for, what, for each community? So we focus a lot on uh, food sovereignty. Food security is so important right now in COVID because it's really shined a light on we have a lot of food insecurity. And so we work on, of course, uh, addressing the crisis, but also to try to look long-term and rebuild indigenous food systems, regenerate uh, traditional trade routes, who have that have been here for thousands and thousands of years? Um, look at um, and uh, do more at look at, but really help to provide space and uh, energy and information about uh, returning to natural buildings and all of these solutions are also benefiting society, the larger society, right? Of course they are. So um, because we are modeling um, what we call regenerative economies, which is stopping the extraction and the power over that Pat is talking about, that power over paradigm, but really working with Mother Earth, working with our relatives, working with the land and... Um, so that humans are part of it and not dominant over and just, just helping to kind of catalyze that, right? And the practicality of it in today's society. So it's not just an ideal of something that we want to do, but how do we actually do it, you know, right now? And, um, hmm. yeah. How do we do it? Mm-hmm. How we do it. Well, we're going to find out. <laughs> yeah. Um, I see one more question from Omar that I think we can close the session with. How do you define the sacred? Yeah. So, um, um, I saw that question and I actually wrote the same question here. Um, I said I need to unpack that word sacred because we're talking um, because it's, you know, it's very sort of Disney native. Um, in some people's mind, you know, the natives are always so sacred. We're talking about yeah. sacred, but I want to, and, and that is true, but I also want to 
sort of say that you know this isn't this isn't an indigenous principle. This, um, in my interpretation of sacred, so sacred again, you know, for me, uh, we're so up against this this thing about uh, about our lives here and our presence on the planet right now. I feel um, that everything is in terms of is it leading towards life or is it leading towards death? I mean, like that has to be considered and. And so much of civilization from the last 5,000 years was created without placing life at the center. And so all these systems that arose from intellect, you know, intellect loves to just create and, and go and go and go um, and create problems to solve. Um, and, and yet none of it was really considering what makes our life here. Like this is all the way back from the Romans. I remember the first time I went to Rome, I was like looking around and seeing all these places. And I was like, this is where we went mad. This is where we went mad. Look at this, you know? And I was like, okay. Um, you know, to, to even to go into the Vatican and see all the columns and all that. I mean, it was just like, wow. To, to try to elevate and enlarge ourselves bigger than the earth. But, you know, I keep saying, you know, the earth... Uh, as they say, Mother Earth bats last, but she is the authority around here. We can, we can, we are not going to bend her laws to suit us. Right. We're not going to. It's it cannot be done, and so we are going to have to consider what are the laws that cause life to thrive, right? Um, and that's why I'm so so on it. I'm with you. Like thriving life is is the way. So <laughs> so to me. Um, protecting the sacred is about protecting the life, protecting what makes life, protecting, and, and not only, and here's the other thing, is in modern world paradigm that, that competition gets so intense that we can't get beyond our own, you know, that, that, that's where that fierce individualism that comes in. So we, we are not even beyond our own self in terms of thinking ahead. We, we're planning our retirement, possibly our children's college education, but there's no seven generations foresight going, you know, and so that's the other mindset of, of sacredness is having to think about how does this affect future generations and not only human generations, because as it turns out, we actually do need the flying ones, swimming ones, creepy crawling ones, four-legged ones. <laughs> so, so I'm going to say um, I define the sacred as that which causes life to thrive, principles, actions, physical beings yeah it's perfect yes susan do you want to add anything to that or no i just love that pat i'm going to sit with that for a bit that is allowing life to thrive is what's sacred thank you for that yeah sit with that one and it makes sense you know when i think about when people ask about the humane prison hospice project and why why hospice in prison? And our answer is usually like, why not? I mean, it actually encourages life. It encourages life to care for anyone. Caring encourages life. So it's a thriving action. It can be focused. Sometimes people focus on, oh, we're just tending to something that's dying and that that somehow is the, the focus, but that's the mirage. That's the, that's the, the catalyst or the carrier that allows life to actually thrive is by tending to what is not thriving um, so that it can. And so it's 
there's like no question in my mind, why wouldn't you have hospice in prison? We have to have hospice in prison. Yeah. Um, so there shouldn't even, we don't even have to talk about it. <laughs> it's just, it's a life or death situation. Because wow, um, so it feels that, that, yeah. Mm-hmm. That's but usually it gets, like you too. said, Pat, people pull it out. They go, oh, but then there's people who should be punished or there's, what about safety? Or there's a guard. I mean, they just go, the list of complications around just tending to life is remarkable actually. And it's the complications that keep us up at night and keep, you know, give us a job, honestly. I mean, we, we are thriving from complications. <laughs> and I think through true uh, thriving about what we're talking about really leads to true sustainability, right? Because what is sustainability? You often hear it's defined as uh, taking less was still based on taking. No, shift that paradigm. It's about sustaining that the sacred, right? Sustaining what sustains us, sustaining um, thriving through relationship, right? And that deep connection and protection of the sacred. It's not about taking amounts, right? Shift that as well. I think it's about receiving this life as a sacred gift, Yes. And treating absolutely. it as such. Yes. Well, well, you two, we are two minutes out. I just, I want to be able to just acknowledge my gratitude um, to close this conversation. Um, thank you so much for saying yes to the invitation to coming into a conversation that we've never had before. Um, and exploring what that means. And for everyone who was able to join, I'm so delighted because it, there is an energetic quality to sharing um, conversation in community. And I hope that there was an experience for people to feel like they had their little stones rubbed against other stones this morning um, and can take away something from it. I want to just also call in all the relations and Mother Earth, Father Sky, front and back, side to side. Um, every being that has graced us in allowing us to be present to show up in this way, in this day, in this way. So, oh, thank you so much. Kara, did you want to say anything as a farewell? <laughs> yes, thank you. Pat and Susan and Lady Bird, thank you so much again for your presence with us and for reimagining and co-creating something new at the new school today. So much gratitude. Um, Just one more reminder to um, make a donation if you can and if you haven't to help us keep these programs going. I just posted in the chat box. So we'll go ahead and end with that. Pat McCabe, Susan Balbus, and Lady Bird Morgan, thank you for being with us at the New School at Commonville. You've been listening to a TNS conversation with Pat McCabe, Susan Balbus, and host Lady Bird Morgan. Thank you for listening to TNS, the new school at Commonweal. The new school at Commonweal is directed by Michael Lerner. Our program coordinator is Kara Epstein. Our audio producer is Ken Adams, and our theme music is by Jeremy Cohen. Visit us online at tns.commonweal.org. That's tns.commonweal.org. Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. You can also find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Facebook, YouTube, Vimeo, and Amazon Music. Thanks for listening.